morning. I uh, suspect that Mark is probably spying on us on the live stream. I'm tempted to test it and kind of make a joke about him and see if he mentions something, but hold off. All right, if you could flip with me to Acts 15. So we are, we are still in Acts, and we are looking at family history. Uh, I was thinking about, I don't know if any of you back in the day watched The West Wing um, show written by Aaron Sorkin. It was about a, a president in the White House. Uh, overall, I, I like the show very much. There was this one episode, though, as a, uh, as a seminary graduate, that kind of thing. I've seen a cu- this moment a couple of times, and every time I've wanted to like leap in the screen and start arguing back. Uh, there's this scene where President Bartlett, played by Martin Sheen, is uh, in a room, and he gets into a debate with uh, a conservative Christian, and he starts lighting into that person saying, well, do you obey what it says in Leviticus when it says, thou shalt not do this, that, or this? Do you? And he's pulling out all these very you know, uh, difficult passages from the Old Testament. And uh, when he finishes, because Aaron Sorkin's the guy who wrote it, you know, it's a clear win for the president, and the person doesn't respond, and I've always wanted to be like, oh, come on, you know, we've thought about this. Uh, but I, I think this is a big point of confusion for a, a lot of people is, yeah, what's going on with the Old Testament and the law? And why is it true that while we read the Old Testament and we take a lot from it, we don't follow to the letter uh, a lot of those laws that are laid down in the first few books of the Bible? Well, for all of the Old Testament, start answering that question, and you'll see how this is relevant very soon. For all the Old Testament, God's people had been guided by the law, which is the word of God spoken to his people. Most famously, it includes the Ten Commandments. So these are the commands passed down from God. They also uh, include a fair amount of civil and ceremonial laws, things like how to approach the temple well and what to do if... uh, an ox you own breaks out and attacks a neighbor, even things like that. Or, uh, it's this fully encompassing rule for how to live. They were meant to help Israel be the kind of nation that God wanted them to be. They were made to allow a sinful people to coexist with a holy God. In the Old Testament, things were a little bit different than they are now for Christians. Here was the plan. Israel would become a great, holy, righteous nation. God would plant Israel right in the middle of all the action, right in the middle of this trade route. And people would have these interactions with Israel and thus be blessed. And they would look at this nation set up and say, wow, you know, this is incredible, well done. And we see this actually happen, the climax of the mission. There's this brief moment of success when a foreign queen comes and visits King Solomon. And She sees everything, and her end result, as she witnesses Israel flourishing and obeying God, she culminates by saying, wow, you know, praise to your great God. And that's, for a brief, beautiful moment in the Old Testament, they've accomplished that mission, and that's that's what it was supposed to be like. But in the New Testament, something new is happening. And there's one important thing to say about the law. It's not that it was like, we're wiping it away or anything like that, it was always pointing towards something else. It was a runway towards something else, and that something else was Jesus. So whereas the law taught people how to make sacrifices, Jesus comes and he is the one and only sacrifice. While the law taught people how to approach the temple, 
Uh, now each person is the temple. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. And whereas before Israel was supposed to be this fixed, holy exemplar, now the mission has changed. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Whereas before, people were to look to Israel and go, wow, now the, the church goes out. And so it's, it's shifted. So at this point in the story, when we get to Acts 15, that great commission is being lived out. The, the story is well underway. The transition is well underway. And through his people, God's been working to fulfill this great commission. And we've seen evidence of it over and over as I've been preaching through Acts. They've gone to the ends of the earth and... Gentiles, which means non-Jewish people, have been turning to God and responding, and God has been moving in their hearts, which is a stunning thing for them to see. God is caring about the whole earth in this way. And while the church is celebrating, some people in the church in Jerusalem are nervous. You mean these people are saved, but they're not following the law? Isn't that how this works? What is this? How is God doing this? And so then we get to this very climactic, very important moment in the history of the church. Uh, let's read it together. Um, I'm going to do basically most, like half of 15. So let's do this. Acts 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this very question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, has there ever been a sentence that probably covered more stuff than there was a lot of debate? Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles, 
who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Let's pray together. Father, this is a big passage. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of work to do to get our head around it. But at the core, what is significant is your love for us and how you are moving through Christ. Help us to hear that now and in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you go to a Barnes & Noble um, sometime soon and you wander through and you see the fantasy section, it's my humble opinion that most all of it has never escaped the shadow of J.R.R. Tolkien, that he basically wrote the fantasy thing and everybody's been trying to imitate him ever since. However, there is one book that I think kind of got out from underneath that. Uh, Some of you may have read it. It's called A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin. She's a fantastic author. She published this book in 1968, uh, and occasionally I teach it. Her story is about this young wizard named Ged who lives in this very hard world. It's like a, it's a world populated by islands. People seem very poor. Uh, nature is mostly against them, and uh, every season it's a miracle when crops come up and those kinds of things. But the one advantage that the people have is that some of them have mastered the ability to perform some magic. Early on in our story, our young protagonist, Ged, reveals in a conflict that he has some magic. He has this ability. This display brings him a fair amount of attention, and eventually he's visited by this older wizard named Ogeon. Hang with me. I know, like, we're, we're venturing deep into nerd territory. It'll pay off. Ogeon offers to train Ged, and soon enough, Ged begins his apprenticeship. Uh, but it doesn't go as he hoped. Because Ged, who is this young kid who has this power, and he's like, I'm a magician, I can do all these great things, meets Ojan, who's like calm and patient and lives by himself and serves an ignorant people patiently and with kindness. He seems content to wander the fields and observe nature and grow to know it better. And Ged notices as he's with him, he doesn't even use magic that often. He's mostly just kind of enjoying the world and serving people around him. Well, the longer Ged is with Ojeon, this man who's clearly kind and loving and makes the world around him a better place, the more impatient our protagonist gets. Uh, They don't move fast enough, these methods. He's not gaining power quickly enough. So Ged ultimately leaves his mentor and goes to this school where he believes he will be trained and get powerful and gain all this. And the course of the book is the consequences for that decision. But he makes that decision. He chooses systems over relationship, and he chooses conditional praise over a fatherly relationship and competition over acceptance. We, uh, I've, I've thought about this, and I teach that book because I, I love that example, and we're not too different, I don't think. Because as Christians, we're invited to a relationship and an invitation to a person in the form of Jesus. But the hold of worldly systems still strong on us We hear the call of Jesus, this is how you change, come and follow me. But we say, I don't know. I'm not convinced. Theologically, as a Christian, I know how to get saved. I know how to change. I have to trust Jesus. I have to follow him, the gentle and lowly one. But deep down, I'm not always sure that's actually the way forward. It explains why we're so slow to pray and so slow to read God's word. So we often fail, I think, to trust that it's the goodness of Jesus that saves, changes. 
So our point today as we're looking is that our only salvation, our only hope for salvation and growth is the grace of Jesus. And I just have two points. Jesus saves, Jesus changes. That's it. So let's start with Jesus saves. If we look here at the beginning of Acts 15, it lays out the problem right away. If we're looking at 15.1, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And later, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. We open with a direct but understandable confrontation to the gospel. It's direct, so it has to be taken seriously. It has to be strongly refuted. But it's understandable because I think we can have empathy for those who are making the claim. As I mentioned before, the gospel's spreading and Gentiles are becoming God worshipers. And the church in Jerusalem hears that these people are becoming Christians, and they're amazed, and wow, this is how God is doing it. But they're also hearing this other rumor, that once the Gentiles become Christians, they're worshiping without submitting to the law. No food laws, no circumcision. The unclean Gentiles are just entering into worship and praising God. And you can understand why this might tear at somebody. Now, the law is real, and it's good. For years and years, it served as the way to get to God. It reflects God's character and his priorities. That's why we study it. That's why we read the Old Testament. It's behind it is the heart and the character of God. We learn more about him by reading it. But the effect is this, what I said before, the law has been fulfilled. The law was pointing to something, and something has come. The person of Jesus, death and resurrection and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. But we can understand why saying goodbye to that law in the same way would be very difficult. They had grown up their whole lives experiencing God through the law, through the temple, and all these different things to come and say, hey, it's not that way anymore. You are the temple. And all of this would be letting go of things that had educated you and taught you about God that hold powerful sway over you. And so I think there's a really understandable sense of why they are frustrated and upset. It's sad. They're letting go of something that has meant a lot to them. Some of you maybe have had a similar experience, even with some geography. Uh, my hometown that I grew up in, I grew up, it did not have a single red light in it until I went to college. It was like, I grew up across from a field. Uh, the farmer every year sold tomatoes and misspelled tomatoes two different ways on both sides of the sign, just like clockwork. I just wanted to be like, I can help you, man. Uh, and, but at the same time, we, I live in a small town that right outside is the, the one BMW plant in North America. And since it showed up, boom, you know, and everything exploded. And it went from, you could go to Ingalls, the grocery store, and you would know everyone in Ingalls, to I don't know everyone in Ingalls. And I feel a sense as that's happening of, it's very good for the community, in a lot of ways. Uh, when I take my sons back, there are actually like parks to play on. There were no parks when I was there, you know? Uh, and that's good, that's great. But I'm sad too, I miss, I miss uh, the lack of traffic. <laughs> uh, I miss driving around at a, when you're, you know, past 10.30 at night, if you were on the road, you were the only person on the road. Uh, I miss that. And so uh, that's a slight, slight, pale imitation of what we're dealing with here. But I think we can understand and empathize with that, that sense of I've lost something that meant very, to me. 
But as understandable as all that might be, we have to recognize that what's at stake here is the gospel itself. Are we saved by grace through faith? Are we saved by the person of Jesus? Or do we have to have something else tacked on? Is there another way? This question is huge for the direction of the church. Everything, I mean, this is huge. This is, everything comes out from here. And it's here that we get those words from Peter. I want to look at Peter, what he says in particular. So if you're looking at verse 7, Peter stands up and he says this. I read it just now, but I want to read it one more time. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He starts by, hey, this is actually God's initiative. It's not ours. I've seen it. We saw Cornelius converted, if you remember that sermon. And God who knows the heart, powerful little phrase, God is referred to occasionally as the heart knower. Proverbs says the heart is, is a mystery, who understands it, but God is called the heart knower. But God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And we see in this argument, as Peter stands up, and eventually James stands up, that they're saying, one, what James says later, this was foreshadowed through all of Scripture. This is what the Old Testament has been pointing to. We've been waiting this moment. This is it. People are brought in. But two, also what Peter is saying is, this is not just God's plan for the Gentiles, for them. This is for us too. This is good. This is not just good for them. This is for us too. The good news is for us as well. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. They're attempting to protect the good news of the gospel. How are we saved? By grace through faith alone. We're saved by encountering and responding to the gracious Jesus. These men knew that Jesus. They knew his heart, and they're speaking it here in front of everyone. I just finished reading uh, a book by Ross Douthat, who's a columnist for the New York Times. He wrote a book called Deep Places about his struggle with Lyme disease. Uh, it was actually very interesting, and I suspect, as I'm speaking to the room, that some of you in this room have had this uh, struggle. Long Island comes up frequently as a focal point of, if you take a map apparently and kind of you know, uh, make it dark around the areas where Lyme disease is more prevalent, it radiates out from a part of Long Island, uh, Plum Island. So a lot of the book was really resonating with me. Um, and he spoke about his experience with Lyme disease, which was very intense and, and really difficult. And he talked about how he felt like what, what he learned was the majority of life we'd like to think it's kind of like an HGTV home special, like the main floor. Everything's beautiful, the TV's there, the fire's roaring, the kitchen, everything's clean. And he's like, when you, when you get that kind of, and some of you have experienced this, when you get a kind of chronic illness or something difficult that's not easily fixed and you're not sure what the plan is, it feels like you kind of fall through that level. You're not on the floor everybody else is on. You're in the basement. And he said, you know, but in the basement, you still have got things to work with. There's sofa, there's this, there's that. And sometime you can kind of see what people are doing up there. And he's like, but then if it gets really bad, 
and it just feels like you you have you found yourself on like chat rooms and dark corners of the internet searching for ways to solve your problems. You fall even deeper down into this dark basement where things are dark. And he says the rag and bone shop is down here. Uh, and things are confusing, and there's a wall between you and everyone else. And one thing he said is one of his reflections was he felt like I think God is down in this lower level. I've thought about that quite a bit. I think that's the gospel, really, is that uh, we would like to think we're on this main floor where everything goes really well and we have it all together. We're always just one moment away from not having anything together, though. Uh, I don't know about you, but um, so there's chronic illness in my family. My mother is chronically ill in a variety of ways. So I, I find myself hyper aware of those kinds of things. And if, if I have like, you know, uh, something unexplainable going on with my body for a day, I'm like on the verge of total panic for that full day. Does anyone else have this experience? You're, it's like right, and you were like, yesterday I was fine. I wasn't thinking about my body at all. Today I'm near panic, you know? It was that, that close. My security is so flimsy. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we are deep down, the, the reality of the situation, we don't live very long, and we're vulnerable, and we're also sinful. We're down in that basement. And the gospel, the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus comes down there with us. Jesus comes down there with us, though he has every reason not to. When I was younger, uh, I went to a church that um, it just, there was in the culture a lot of kind of recommitting your life. And I felt like probably once every six months I would recommit my life to Jesus. I was constantly saying the prayer of faith and hoping it was good enough and sensing my distance from him. And as I think back on that, I, I think that I had not been fully introduced to the Jesus who died once for all comes down to the basement, who loves us very deeply, who when we cry out is there immediately. He yearns to be with us. There's no like, okay, fine, you prayed five times, I'll come down. It's prayer one, he is by our side and with us, right? We uh, read the scripture where Jesus says, come and follow me for my yoke is light. I'm gentle and lowly. Part of Jesus is gentle and lowly. Here's what's interesting about this. The odds are all of us are following something. That we have something that keeps us up late at night. Something that we spend all our time dedicated to. Maybe we're obsessed with social status. We check our phone hundreds of times a day. Maybe we are very concerned about what's going on in the world and we're addicted to the news. Uh, maybe we are so concerned about our appearance that develop eating disorders and those kinds of things, or our performance is all, and if we have a good day at work, we're happy, and we treat our family well. If a bad day at work, we're terrible. The thing is, we're all already following something. But there's only one thing you follow that loves you back. That's Jesus. All the other things invite you to pain and anxiety and suffering, and they promise kind of illusory gains, but they don't pay off again. But Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, 
upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's the same phrase that Peter says here. Should we put a yoke on the neck of the disciples that we can't bear? He's echoing what Jesus said. We're introducing them to Jesus, the one who puts on the light yoke, who says, come to me, for I'm gentle and lowly, and I will give you rest. In other words, come to me, all who make commitments and can't keep them. Come to me, all who can't sleep due to anxiety. Come to me, all who want to quit looking at porn but can't. Come to me, all who lose their tempers and all those who are bad friends. Come to me, and I will give you rest. That's the Jesus that Peter and James are trying to protect here. That's what they're saying. This is the Jesus who's going forth, the one of the light yoke. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. May no person or system or belief obscure that fact. That's what the gospel is. So Peter and James make this argument. But the second point I want to make is Jesus changes us. Encountering this Jesus who saves also changes. There's this story that actually runs underneath this passage that is very interesting, which we can find in Galatians 2. Apparently before this moment happens, we hear this from Paul. There was a little bit of drama. Paul says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. And he starts to explain this story. And we're like, why is Paul and Peter in contradiction with each other? Apparently, Peter goes to the Gentiles, preaches the gospel. He says, this Jesus is free. He's for you. They accept it. But then as some people who want the law to still be there come back, he's suddenly a little embarrassed. It's like, ooh, yeah, I did say that the gospel is free for everybody and that they probably shouldn't follow the law, but I'm a little embarrassed about that. And he refuses to eat with the Gentiles anymore because they're unclean. And Paul calls him out. He says, listen, what you're saying is that it's not by faith. You're saying it's by something else. When this Peter stands up and he speaks, he's a Peter who has been reminded of the goodness of the gospel by Paul by the Gentiles. And I've thought a lot about Peter and why he would retreat, why he would suddenly back off from the goodness of the gospel. I, I wonder if part of it is this fear, like what if I tell them the truth, that the heart of Jesus is full of affection, that he longs to forgive us for our sins, that there are no amount of sins that you can commit that he will not forgive? What if they just kind of go on sinning? What if they just do evil and use Jesus as license? And sometimes I think as Christians, we can kind of feel that way a little bit, like, yeah, the gospel's really good, it's all about, but you should get to work, right? That line of thought, I remember um, in high school, we had this thing called See You at the Pole, where Christian students would gather up and speak, and a student stood up and, and proclaimed the goodness of the gospel and said, look, if you're in Christ, God's disposition, he's not angry at you anymore, his disposition towards you is total affection. And I remember seeing some frowns from some adults in the back when that was said. And I could just hear in their minds, well, now my kid's just going to drink a lot and do all this. And, you know, maybe that's true, but don't, don't say it, you know. I don't want them to get in trouble. That's the more important thing. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this free and good gospel? Is it a dangerous thing? Should we kind of keep it tucked away just to make sure people do what's right? 
Well, let's say this first. People won't take advantage of it if they've truly met Jesus. Maybe a little bit. But ultimately, they're going to head towards Jesus. If, they really, if you really meet Jesus and you see the goodness of Jesus, you're going to start heading towards him. My campus pastor said that he used to, to read his scripture uh, every day, but it was very loaded with his value was wrapped up in whether he read the Bible that day. And he felt like if he read the Bible that day, God loved him, and if he didn't, God hated him. And when he finally kind of encountered the goodness of Jesus, he said he had to quit reading the Bible for like a month. Just because it was so fraught with tension and weight, he just had to put it away. But you know what he did after that month? He came back. But this time, because he wanted to get to know Jesus. I think that's us. If we, if we preach the good news of the gospel and we meet Jesus, he's good. We're drawn towards him. The second thing is the Holy Spirit's really good and it's real. And the Holy Spirit draws us towards Christ. And Peter could trust the Holy Spirit that when I say the gospel and I talk to people about the goodness of Jesus, the Holy Spirit pulls people towards God. But the last one, and this is the big one, I think we find ourselves thinking this way. The gospel's really good, but that's... If you're afraid what the gospel will do to people, if you're afraid what it'll do to yourself... If I admit and let it sink down that I'm fully forgiven in Christ, what will I become? If you're afraid of that, I think we've forgotten that the gospel is just not what saves us. It's actually how we change. That's how we change is the goodness of the gospel. It's not like the gospel gets you in the door and now shut up and get to work. Right? That's what I thought. That's why I would go every six months and pray, will you accept me again? Because I thought the gospel was, the gospel's really good, and now you're in the door, now get to work like everybody else. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel's the same thing. It gets us in the door, and the same thing that got us in the door sustains us. It's the feast. The gospel's what changes you. Jesus is what changes you. It's not about holding on to Jesus. It's about Jesus holding on to you. I want to read this quote from Dane Ortland. Uh, he wrote this book, Gentle and Lowly, which is coming out a lot in this message, so kudos to him. If you haven't read the book, uh, it's Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. You're welcome. Uh, here's this quote, and oh man, hit me really hard this week. Dane Ortland says, our strength of resolve is not part of the formula of retaining his goodwill. Our strength of resolve is not the formula of retaining God's goodwill. When my two-year-old Benjamin begins to wade into the gentle slope of the zero-entry swimming pool near our home, he instinctively grabs hold of my hand. He holds on tight as the water gradually gets deeper, but a two-year-old's grip is not very strong. Before long, it's not he who's holding on to me, but me holding on to him. Left to his own strength, he will certainly slip out of my hand, but if I have determined that he will not fall out of my grasp, he's secure. He can't get away from me if he tries. So with Christ, we cling to him to be sure. But our grip is that of a two-year-old amid the stormy waves of life. His sure grasp never falters. Those of you who've been a Christian for a while may feel the truth of this. You may look back and be able to see, I feel like I'm kind of sliding off and you feel like you've been divinely called back through a message or a friend or a sermon or and constantly if you look back you're like I just feel like I begin to wade away and he pulls me back gently. 
I feel very clearly that God has never forgotten me, even when I wander off and bring things up. So the same Peter who gives in to fear about the gospel, in Acts 15, he's defending the goodness of the gospel. He accepts the rebuke. He's willing to change for the gospel. He understands what's at stake. And when Peter argues, he's saying the law was pointing towards something greater. And here it is. This is not like some secret code. Yeah, yeah, the gospel's good, but really get your act together. This is the feast. This is the banquet. This is what changes us. I've used this example before, but, you know, good examples. They never run out. Uh, imagine like the evening before a wedding, um, divine visitor shows up to the groom and says, listen, no matter what you do, the bride you're marrying tomorrow, she loves you deeply. With her whole heart, she'll never leave you or forsake you, no matter what. She's wholly devoted to your flourishing and only desires to be with you. And no matter what you do, she'll always stay with you. All right, if the young groom hears that and goes, ha-ha, let's see how much I can get away with, you would say he's a fool and he hasn't, doesn't truly love his bride. But if he goes, my goodness, I don't deserve this gift. I can't believe it's happened to me that I've ended up with someone so faithful and lovely. I love her with my whole heart and dedicate my life to her, then he has responded, right? And that's how the gospel works. And you know what? Come back in five years, and I suspect if you observe this young groom, you'll find someone who's been gradually but perceptibly changed by the love shown towards him. This is how Christians change. We change through our relationship with Christ, through the love of the Father. Give me all the self-help books and all the gurus and all the life hacks in the world. Trade them all for the Holy Spirit, whose task is to apply the reality of God's love for us to our hearts. Jesus has the deepest affection for me, has forgiven me, is uniting me with the Father. And in Acts 15, what Peter is inviting people to is he's saying, I know it's tough to let go of so many things you've held on to, but there's something greater which is Jesus and his love for us. We're now saved by faith, one sacrifice once for all. It's been fulfilled. Everything it was pointing to, everything you loved about it has been fulfilled in the person of Christ. That's the gospel. His yoke is light. This is the last we see of Peter in the Bible. It's him here in Acts 15, bending the goodness of the gospel. If you are a descendant of Gentiles, he's speaking on your behalf. If you have Jewish descent as well, he's speaking on your behalf as well. He's looking to us to be unified over the goodness of the gospel, over the goodness of Jesus. I love that that's the final picture we get here. His story is such a mess. Uh, it's just up and down, failure, success, failure, success, failure, success, and that we see him here defending the gospel and that's our last image of him. It feels right. So my final challenge to you is that the gospel is not a side thing. It's the main thing. Being accepted by grace through Jesus before God is the main thing. It's how we're saved, but it's also how we change. If you have somewhere forgotten that, particularly, I think, the changing bit, if you have been doing it on your own for a really long time, my invitation is to you, is come and follow the one who is gentle, lowly, 
burden is light. The yoke is easy. He longs to give your soul test. Pray together. Father, we need you so deep. I am overwhelmed by the goodness of Jesus. Uh, we constantly fall back on our, all our old habits, on all our fears. Even in our relationship with you, we can trick ourselves into thinking that it's us who are clinging to you instead of you clinging to us. Help us to see you for who you are. Help us to see the grace, forgiveness you've offered us. Father, if there are people in this room whose burden has been heavy, I ask that for today and many weeks and months forward that they would feel that they are in a relationship with one who makes the burden light. Who says, come and follow me offers rest. May we stop, be still, know that you are God, and experience your rest in this name. Amen.